welcome to the first of our monthly updates on the case. These short episodes will set out the latest legal case developments and you can find out more about our work on the campaign. As you may be aware, a new case review manager was allocated to review the submissions with the CCRC last month. It's hoped that he'll prioritise the submissions, which they have now had on their desks for 16 months. Whilst waiting for the new manager to take over, we seized the opportunity by engaging our forensic team in conducting examinations and testings of a specific brand new issue which was lodged with the CCRC in December following their request for this material. Forensic reports are pending which will also be sent to the CCRC in support of the issue. Essex Police and the Police Complaints Authority have still not completed their investigations into the complaints we lodged with them in June 2020, which was specific to two officers involved in the case. A complaint was made to the Commissioner about the lack of integrity of the police addressing these issues, in which he ruled in our favour. We hope to have some positive news soon. The last month has been a busy one for all of us, and here are just a few of the highlights. I've been creating, uploading and monitoring the TikTok channel we recently launched. Followers are growing daily and we believe this is an excellent way to provide the younger generation with the case facts. Although the whole team have been involved in creating these short videos, I've recently been creating some in a different format in an attempt to reach a larger target audience. Comments and questions also need to be answered which Yvonne and I check and address daily. We have also been preparing the material for the anniversary event on the 7th of August in Essex by creating flyers, disclaimers and sending invitations to friends and supporters. More on this in the September update. Philip and Yvonne are invited to speak at the United Against Injustice conference to be held in Liverpool on the 29th of October. They are both proud and privileged to be part of this unique event in the company of so many fighting injustice. This event is free and open to all, so if you want to come along, you can get tickets through Eventbrite or by visiting the UAI website. You may have read an article published in the Mirror on the 18th of July, which discussed a personal letter not intended for publication, which Jeremy sent to a friend, which is now being sold. In this letter, Jeremy discussed the length of time he's had to wait for the CCRC and his opinion of how his case is being treated by them. It is astonishing that the recipient of the letter would choose to sell it for personal gain, but also that the Mirror would use extracts of the content owing to the legality issues surrounding publishing private letters. Join us next time for more updates and news. Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast, Season 3. In today's episode, we focus on Jeremy's former friend, Brett Collins. Collins supported Jeremy as a defence witness prior to the trial and was vocal about Jeremy's innocence. But in media interviews since the 1991 police investigation, he's changed his mind regarding Jeremy's innocence. The relationship with Jeremy and Brett has been expanded on and exaggerated over the years and isn't the close best friend situation you've been led to believe in books and on documentaries. Collins himself can now be shown to be guilty 
of changing the evidence he provided in interview and statements in 1985 and expanded on this during his recent participation in the Mindhouse programme The Bamba's Murder at the Farm. Collins is another who's financially profited from the tragedies at White House Farm by speaking to journalists and authors. In this podcast, we explain why we believe Collins is largely financially motivated. During the time that the six-part drama White House Farm was aired on ITV in 2020, Collins spoke to the media extensively, and it was now that he began to lie about not only his relationship with Jeremy, but about Jeremy's character and exaggerate his previous assertions. In one media article, he stated that, After he was jailed, I just wanted to get away from it all. I dumped all of the pictures I had of me and Jeremy together because I didn't want to think about any of it again. And yet, since 2020, he's been quite happy to be interviewed by journalists, podcast makers and TV programme makers. No doubt he was paid handsomely for his contributions and exclusive information. In fact, once he began speaking again from 2020, he continued his defamation of Jeremy, and it's telling how his story now changed in this time. Brett also admitted in an article in print media in 2020 that, As time has gone by, and I've had a lot of time to think about things, I've totally changed my mind. So not only does he now state he's changed his mind about Jeremy's innocence, but has completely changed his original evidence. This raises the question of why. Was he committing perjury in 1985? Or is it simply that a better story that fits with the media narrative and apparent exclusive new information would gain a larger financial reward? In fact, it's highly unlikely the tabloid press would pay him for a story supporting Jeremy's innocence. We now have the evidence that Collins profited from the tragedies soon afterwards. Collins later admitted that after being released from initial questioning, after being arrested with Jeremy at Sheila's flat on 8th of September 1985, he was collected from the police station by a journalist. Collins additionally confirmed that he was extremely vocal with the British tabloid media at the time and conducted several well-paid interviews with the likes of the News of the World in the UK. So today, we'll highlight the facts surrounding Jeremy and Brett's relationship and dispel some of the lies which he's now stating as being fact. Brett Eric Collins was born in Auckland, New Zealand in 1953 and was 33 at the time of the tragedies nine years older than Jeremy. In his witness statements, Brett listed his occupation as restaurateur. But whether this was factual at the time, it's known that Brett was more invested in trading cars, for which he committed several criminal offences over the years, which we'll discuss later. At the time he met Jeremy, he already had a criminal record. His offences were, for the most part, drug-related, and we have documented evidence of his criminal history up to 1985. These offences all took place in Auckland, New Zealand, and comprised the following. 1. January 1974. Attempted theft and theft. He was fined $75 for each offence. 2. December 1977. 
possession of cannabis and was fined $80. 3. March 1979, possession of cannabis plant and was fined $250. 4. August 1982, offensive behaviour and received a $150 fine. And 5. And in 1983, possession of a cannabis plant and was fined $300. Jeremy was introduced to Brett via a mutual friend, Jeff Reeves, whom Jeremy had met in Hong Kong whilst travelling back from his time learning farming practices in Australia. Jeff offered Jeremy a room to stay in a house he shared, and it was there Jeremy met Brett. Jeremy and Brett spoke occasionally after Jeremy returned to the UK, but in June 1985, Collins contacted Jeremy during a trip he was taking to visit Australia. Brett telephoned Jeremy on his arrival in Hawaii to tell him that he would be in the UK in July and asked if Jeremy could put him up for a few days. Jeremy agreed. During this visit, Brett stayed at Jeremy's cottage. It was now that Brett met Neville and June and saw them several times on his stay. One occasion was when he was collecting fishing equipment from White House Farm. Brett also helped out working on the farm with Jeremy, but only saw the Bambas in the paddocks. Brett informed Essex Police in his interview and statements that Neville and June appeared to get on well with Jeremy and that they were both pleasant people. After a couple of weeks staying with Jeremy, Brett left to continue his foreign travel trip. On 20th of July, he arrived at Athens Airport on a budget return ticket, which, on arrival at the airport, he sold. It's not known why he sold the ticket, but it indicates that he had no intention of returning to the UK in the near future. He initially stayed in a hotel for four days before knocking on doors to find cheaper accommodation. He then found a cheap private residence where he lived for the remainder of his stay. On 9th of August, Collins read an article in The Sun about the tragedies at a farmhouse in rural Essex and quickly realised the story was about Jeremy's family. Brett then made arrangements to return to England. On 12th of August, he flew back to Heathrow and after a night in a hotel, contacted Jeremy asking to be collected from the train station at Colchester. Once Jeremy collected Collins, they went for lunch, accompanied by Julie Mugford, before eventually arriving at Jeremy's cottage where Brett stayed. Julie soon became extremely jealous of Brett and the time that he and Jeremy spent together. She grew increasingly suspicious that Brett may have had romantic designs on Jeremy. She told Essex Police in a statement that Jeremy and Brett were sitting on the settee. Brett laid his head on Jeremy's lap, whereupon Jeremy started stroking his hair. I thought this strange. The Bowflowers and Edens also took exception to Brett. They didn't like or trust him and referred to him as the Puff. They watched and recorded his interactions with Jeremy each time they went to the farm. Even in 1991, Anne Eaton could still recall details about Collins and in a draft statement to the City of London Police, she wrote, Jeremy and Brett played about a bit. Julie was ignored. Seemed strange. He looked a puffter. DSI Ainsley also chose to infer 
there was more than a friendship between Jeremy and Collins. In his report to the Director of Public Prosecutions, in November 1985, he wrote, Physically, Jeremy is 6 feet 0 inches in height, well-proportioned, muscular build. He has natural fair hair, which is presently dyed black. He is considered to be handsome, and certainly has a way with the opposite sex. There is no doubt, as previously stated, that Brett Collins is homosexual, and he and Bamba have kept close company in New Zealand and since Collins arrived in the United Kingdom in June 1985. However, Ainsley knew that Brett had already denied any relationship with Jeremy during his police interviews and in his witness statements. In his statement of 1st of October, Collins stated clearly, I've known Jeremy for something like four years. It is a non-sexual friendship. Although I am bisexual, I have never entered into any form of homosexuality with him. He was a good friend, but we were not that close. And yet, in the media in 2020, Collins now stated he'd been in a sexual relationship with Jeremy. Collins, no doubt, had a crush on Jeremy, and he has ultimately acted with a similar response as Julie Mugford. It's also probable that Collins was paid more for his interviews for this new and revealing story. During his stay after the tragedies, Brett latched onto Jeremy, and whether this was just in support, or whether he had his sights set on getting into a relationship, it didn't go unnoticed. Robert Beauflower paid £500 for background checks to be done on Collins. According to Beauflower, this was arranged through Jim Carr, the manager of the caravan site. In his diary, Beauflower wrote, Asked Jim Carr to make inquiries in NZ about the found wealth of Brett Collins, one-time snack bar operator, a restaurant proprietor. His brother was a garage owner dealing in executive cars. Asked Jim if he could, through his New Zealand friends, obtain a rundown on Brett Collins and the source of his sudden new riches. Jim Carr suggests a detective agency in New Zealand. I undertook to guarantee £500 and to leave him to deal with it as he thinks best. Brett Collins' brother is a villain. He knows ways and means of getting in and out of the country without passports and believes that Brett was probably involved. Could even have helped Jeremy on the night. This payment appears to have been done to establish if Brett could also be implicated in the murders along with Jeremy. In Robert's interview with the City of London Police in 1991, he reveals that he also asked a distant relative, Chris Neville, to do checks independently of those being conducted by Jim Carr's contact. Robert said, I would describe talking to Brett Collins. The reason for this paragraph was that I was intrigued by him and wanted to know as much about him as possible. Hence my request to Chris Neville, who lived in New Zealand, to find out as much as possible about this man. It would be fair to say that I was highly suspicious of him. There's a great deal of misreporting which has occurred over the years regarding the allegation that Jeremy attempted to sell nude or semi-nude photographs of Sheila to the media within weeks of the tragedies. This has been reported in books and TV programmes as something sinister and seedy. However, this is not the true story. It was Brett who arranged 
and then encouraged Jeremy to speak to Michael Fielder, a journalist from the Sun newspaper. The arranged meeting was set out to Jeremy that it was an interview so that he could talk about the tragedy from his perspective and the meeting was arranged for 16th of September 1985. So how do we know that Jeremy didn't offer Sheila's photographs to Michael Fielder? The evidence is contained in the case material and by deconstructing the statements and testimonies as well as the police reports, it's clear that this act of selling photographs of Sheila was not possible. During the meeting, Fielder appeared to have no interest in getting Jeremy's story and asked him if he had access to any nude photographs of Sheila. In a statement given in 1985, Colin Caffell, Sheila's ex-husband, set out that on 7th of September, Jeremy had told him that he'd come across slides of Sheila. Colin elaborated that they were soft pornography, as they were quite explicit in detail. I asked Jeremy, if I could take these slides so that I could destroy them. He agreed that I could take them, which I did. He continued, Having removed the other slides from Sheila's flat, I disposed of them by putting them in the dustbin. I did, in fact, place the slides into a dustbin liner and handed them to a refuse collector to ensure they went into the dust cart. Therefore, nine days prior to the meeting with the journalist, Jeremy had asked Colin to destroy these images, which he did. In an article featuring Brett in the Mirror during February 2020, Collins set out an apparent conversation he'd had with Jeremy, in which he said, I remember saying to him at the time, you're going to need an alibi. They might put this thing on you. He said to me, oh, I have. I was at home. I said to him, that doesn't sound like much of an alibi. Even in the immediate aftermath of the deaths, Brett says Bamba's behaviour was strange. So why is that strange? Jeremy was at home when he received a call from his dad alerting him to the unfolding events at the farm. Julie Mugford confirmed that she spoke to Jeremy on the phone when Jeremy got home from work and again at 03.30. Why would Jeremy have lied? This was a truthful account. Did Brett try to encourage Jeremy to give a false alibi? Another piece of apparent information provided by Collins was reported in March 2020, when New Zealand media ran a story to tie in with the broadcast of the six-part drama White House Farm. Now, Collins came up with even more stories. Referring to the time he met Jeremy in New Zealand for the first time, Collins stated that Jeremy made an immediate impression on him with his mop-top haircut and boyish good looks. He continued and he said, I've got a backup plan if I want to stay longer. And he pulled out a bag full of uncut diamonds. I said, where the F did you get that? And he said, Granny was always flush. The article then said that prior to departing for New Zealand, Bamba had raided his grand safe and pulled all the diamonds out of the precious ornaments. How ridiculous was this claim? Jeremy did not have access to his grand safe, and not a single family member ever said this happened, or even that Jeremy could access the safe at Vaulty Manor, the home of his grandmother. You can be assured that had there even been the slightest suggestion of this, 
then the Bowflowers and Eatons would have reported this to the police and informed them during their daily bombardment of the police following the tragedies. In fact, they're probably now reeling that they weren't the ones to invent this evidence to use against Jeremy. Another issue, which has now completely changed, is in regarding to the amount of money Jeremy had with him during his stay in New Zealand. The purpose of the cash has also changed according to Brett Collins. Of course, the money Jeremy had with him was to fund the trip to Australia, but again Collins has turned this into something sinister that never happened. In his witness statement, dated 1st of October 1985, Collins stated, During our friendship, he's never lent me any large amounts of money. When I first met him in New Zealand, he stayed rent-free and was only liable for domestic services. At that time, he had almost $2,000, and that didn't seem a vast amount to give away. Since being in the country, I've lived with him rent-free to return the favour I did in New Zealand. However, in an interview in 2020 with the media, Collins now said, Bamba's diving trip hit a snag when he lost the $5,000 in a drug deal gone awry. Collins says Bamba had met a would-be heroin distributor at a bar in Auckland City, but got ripped off and lost everything. Needing money, Collins says he took Bamba to sell Granny's diamonds to a jeweller he knew on the Karangahapi Road. Isn't it odd how $2,000 to fund a trip then changed to $5,000 to finance a heroin deal? But again, it made a better story for his own financially driven motives. If he gave this as an exclusive, which we have no doubt he did, Collins would have been handsomely rewarded. In newspaper articles printed in 2020 and also on the Mindhouse programme, Collins remarked on Jeremy and his love of cars and spoke about plans Jeremy had discussed with him on the farm. More specifically, Collins said, he said he wanted to buy a Ferrari or Porsche and put the farm on the market as soon as possible and live as a playboy in London. Although there is some degree of truth in that Jeremy did one day hope to be able to get a Porsche, it was not as you imagine. Jeremy explained this in evidence to the police that the car, if he got one, would be a relatively inexpensive kit car. But what Collins said about the farm and putting it on the market as soon as possible was again fabricated. Jeremy did not have any intention to sell the farm or to live in London, and this was actually set out in a statement of Collins on 9th of September 1985, in which he said, He has never said that he was going to sell up and move from the village. I think he was going to continue to run things with the help of Peter, his uncle, Anne's husband. So again, the complete opposite of what he stated in 2020, and the purpose of the change was that it was much more appealing to the programme and the media if it related to Jeremy having a playboy lifestyle. You only need to Google Brett Collins to find the car-related offences he's committed. They include that during July 2014, he was fined a record 30,000 New Zealand dollars for unregistered trading of motor vehicles. Media articles state this had been his fifth similar conviction over the preceding eight years. The judge stated, The defendant continued to sell motor vehicles for several years 
despite several previous convictions for selling motor vehicles without being registered. This penalty sends out the message that this kind of reckless behaviour will not be tolerated. However, it appears that this didn't phase Collins, who continued his illegal trading, and in 2016 he was caught again, even though he was banned from trading following the 2014 fine. In this instance, he was ordered to pay a new high of $50,000. At the trial, the judge stated, Without question, Mr. Collins' case this time falls into the band of the most serious cases, and that is because his blatant recidivism and disregard of the law brings him within that category. Collins appealed the sentence, saying the fine outweighed the charge, but failed to appear when the matter was first called. He later failed to file submissions and failed to appear again when the appeal was heard in court, at which the judge stated, Mr. Collins has clearly chosen to flout the law. Previous fines have obviously had no effect on Mr. Collins. He knows the fines have become progressively more severe, but he continues to offend nonetheless. Judge Paul observed, when he sentenced Mr. Collins in June 2014, that fines imposed in this area cannot be regarded as a license fee to break the law. It is clear that Mr. Collins now regards fines in that way because he appears content to pay them in order to continue reoffending. The High Court dismissed the appeal. For the final issue, we turn to the hitman scenario invented by Julie Mugford. In his witness statements to the police in 1985, Collins was asked to include information regarding his knowledge of Matthew MacDonald and if he'd heard anyone suggest Jeremy or Matthew could be responsible for the murders. Brett wrote about Jeremy that, I've never heard anyone suggest or say that Jeremy was responsible for the shootings. If I'd heard it or thought it for one moment, I would tell you without hesitation. I've never had any conversation with him concerning the getting rid of the family in order to get the inheritance. The hitman scenario was then put to Collins and his response was, In all the time I've known him, I cannot recall ever hearing the name mentioned, nor have I seen any correspondence or taken any phone calls. Most of his friends are mainly social friends of Julie's or old work friends. I cannot think of anyone else specifically. However, in media reports in 2021, Collins now stated, I've got a feeling that he didn't have the passion to pull the trigger. I think he paid someone to do it, which is quite common. If you want someone gone, you can pay one of those ex-army types. He was quite good at planning things, and he was a thinker. What is ironic is that, unknown to Collins, Julie Mugford tried to implicate him in the murders, and did so during an interview with the Canadian police. On receiving the report from Canada, DC Cowell of the Met Police thought this worthy of reporting and did so in a message to DC West on 18th of April. DC Cowell wrote, 1. Quote, Julie Smachansky was asked, Susan Battersby states that you told her about Brett Collins being possibly involved in violent crime in New Zealand. Who told you? Are there any details? Jeremy told me that Brett had used a baseball bat to kill somebody because they owed money. 
They lived together in both Australia, Sydney, and New Zealand, but the offences were in New Zealand. I believe Brett's brother was dealing in drugs in Europe, and I was led to believe that Brett, through his brother, could get fake passports to allow him to move about. Question. Could Jeremy have confided in Brett? Yes, I believe Brett was consulted prior to the murders. That was my gut feeling. His arrival before the murders was bizarre and his return afterwards. He turned up suddenly. I feel that when Brett turned up, Jeremy changed. I did not like Brett and it was a mutual dislike. I went to London when Brett was around. It's subjective, but he was not a nice man. Money and lifestyle were important to him. He had a crush on Jeremy. It was more than a friendship in my estimation. For me, I've got no real evidence, but feel sure he was involved. This concludes this episode, in which we've been able to set the facts straight, particularly regarding the character of Brett. It's obvious that Collins cannot be trusted and is a criminal in his own right. And it's now also evident that he was also eager to financially gain from the tragedies, and, in the last two years, has continued to do this in a really active way. Perhaps this was to pay for more fines for illegal car trading. We asked Jeremy if he would like to say anything about Collins. Usually, Jeremy would write a detailed piece. However, in this instance, his reply was immediate and short. Jeremy said, Brett Collins, he is a nobody. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamber, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC, HM Wakefield, 5 Love Lane, Wakefield, WF29AG, or see our website for details at www.jeremy-bamber.co.uk.